Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. I'm Don. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you to the committee, Woodstock West, my good friend Ralph, for the kind invitation to come and participate this weekend. I want to take a moment to thank the other speakers that have knocked my socks off. Oh, my God. What great talks. You know, I laughed. I cried. I almost died. I mean, uh, just wonderful emotion and just, you know, what I really love about events like this, as much as anything, uh, isn't that I get to be up here and do this. This is wonderful, and it's an honor and a privilege, but it's I get to sit out there, and I get to listen to the caliber of talks, and I get to have people carry the message to me. Because my sobriety date is September 16, 1991. I've been sober over 27 years. I've been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and active that entire time. I've been sponsoring men since I was six months sober. I've been into this book since day number two. And all that information, one thing is crystal clear to me. I cannot carry the message to myself. (laughs) And if I could carry the message to myself, well, I guess I'd be home in Bellingham, Washington, carrying the message to myself. So thank you to the other speakers and the speakers yet to come and all the people that have been kind enough to have conversations with me in the hallways and on the couches and in the chairs and seeing some old friends and some old... You know, seeing Aaron, Aaron over there, a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of people don't know this about, Aaron married my wife and I uh, over 22 years ago. And uh, I see Aaron and I go, it's your fault. You're the guy. And it was great. We knew, we knew Aaron was uh, practicing as a minister and uh, we, it was just, he was a friend of ours. It was a logical choice to have him marry us. I didn't know he had never married anyone before. He, he left that out. And, would, and we had already asked him, and he said yes. So we couldn't I'd say, well, wait a minute. We'd like someone with some more experience. And, and we figured, how bad could it go? And then we're up there. We're at the altar. We're getting married. And uh, Aaron's about halfway through the ceremony. He's killing it, man. It's beautiful. He's smooth. We're feeling the spirit. And then he loses his place in his readings. And there's this uncomfortable silence in the room. And he's flipping pages in his little book. And it seems like an eternity. My wife, you know, she's not playing. She's getting very upset. And she leans over to Aaron and under her breath, she goes, read anything. And and Aaron doesn't miss a beat. Under his breath, he goes, there's funerals in here, too. And 300 people in the sanctuary couldn't figure out why we were laughing so hard. (laughs) So, man, we'll always have that, baby, you know. And I get to talk about steps eight and nine, and I love talking about steps eight and nine because there's been a transformation in my life where steps eight and nine are concerned. Because I'm like everybody else when I'm new in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know what I mean? You're sitting there in your wardrobe, your life burned to the ground, new, trying to look cool, everybody knows you're faking, and I'm just glancing over at the steps, hanging on the window shades, you know, and you get to step eight, made a list of all persons we'd harm, became willing to make amends to all of them. You could drop down to nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so and injure others, and suddenly those become the two steps we call the hell no steps. (laughs) But you know, we're world, Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson says that we are worldly people indeed. And what we say that we're street people is what we're saying. We know a hustle when we see one. And we know a good idea when we see one. And we know a bad idea when we see one. And when we're first introduced to steps eight and nine, it's very obvious to us. We don't need to talk to a sponsor or an old timer or somebody that's been here longer than us. We don't need to take counsel with anyone to know that this is going to be a very bad idea. Because I, shocking as this may seem, and I'm in a lot of trouble when I arrive in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I know that's nobody else's story, but I have the loser's resume. You know, I have warrants for my arrest in two counties because I'm an overachiever. Uh, I haven't worked in a year. I'm living at my sister's house at age 31 because that's where tough guys go. When the going gets tough, we go home to family. 
I don't have a car. I haven't had a valid driver's license in 10 years. I've never had a checking account. I owe the IRS over $80,000. I don't know what I owe the rest of the world, probably that much. And I am complaining to my new sponsor about my big problems. And I remember him hearing about the warrants for my arrest and the hopeless debt and the unemployment and being very unimpressed by it and saying, oh, these are your big deals. And I said, yeah, I think they're fairly significant. And he told me I was wrong. Can you imagine that? He said, you're wrong, Don. He goes, you only got one big deal. And that's it. You got something called alcoholism. And that means this thing wants to kill you slowly and take a large bite out of anyone that has the misfortune of caring about a guy like you. And we'll let you know when these other things are a problem. And what I heard was I didn't have to pay back the IRS. <laughs> Found out I was wrong. But I'll tell you what, this thing about, you know, we talk about recovery from alcoholism. But, you know, there's a propulsion system for recovery from alcoholism. We talk a lot about it, sponsorship, steps, attending meetings, service commitments, carrying the message to the alcoholic, all these things that we do that propel us into recovery, that keep us moving in the right direction. But there's a propulsion system for untreated alcoholism, drunk or sober, and it tells me I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-seeking, self-delusion, and self-pity. Any one of those four things can kill me dead. You put them together, you got a deadly cocktail. And one thing in Alcoholics Anonymous that I found the old-timers would not tolerate was self-pity. They taught me to laugh about my problems. You know how they did it? Because they laughed at them first. <laughs> I was not happy that I owed the IRS $80,000. So let me tell you. You got a half a million in the bank, it's a big deal. Nobody wants to write a check for 80 grand, but you do it, you bite the bullet. But you're living on your sister's house, you ain't worked in a year, and when you do go to work, you're making minimum wage with taxes taken out, it's a big deal. And my sponsor just was blase about this 80 grand. He'd say, oh, Don, that's a lot of money. But people have owed more, you know, it'll work out. It'll probably take some time, but let's not worry about that right now. But he took that information and he put it into service in Alcoholics Anonymous immediately. For the next, oh, I don't know, three years, if any newcomer had the audacity to complain about their little $1,200 IRS debt, my sponsor would go, hold that thought, Jimmy. Hey, Don, you got a minute? <laughs> and I'd walk over and he'd go, Don, tell Jimmy how much you owe the IRS. And I'd say, I owe the IRS $80,000. And Jimmy would go, Jesus. And I'd go, just want to be a service. <laughs> We come here with our problems. We think we'll never get over them. We think, well, how can we possibly stay sober? We've stayed in the water too long. And I'm here to tell you, if you're new and you're thinking about all your problems, you're thinking they're insurmountable, you're in a room full of people that found out they were wrong. And you'll find out you're wrong, too, if you get a sponsor and you go through these 12 steps. Because under their tutelage, you will find a way out. You'll find a new way of life. And you will find out the things that you think are hard turn out to be the easy things. And the things you think are easier are the things you best be paying attention to. Because there have been many things in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous that I thought that doesn't apply to me, and I found out quite rudely that it did. Now, I'm an alcoholic that got the AA the old-fashioned way. Failure and drinking, you know what I mean? It's a great combination if you want to get it here. Because if you're going to go the distance with your alcoholism, you can't let a little thing like looking bad slow you down, and I certainly didn't. <laughs> And I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous, more dead than alive, on September 16, 1991, and all the good was gone. You know what I mean? Well, you look around, there's no safe direction, and you can't figure out a plan B. If I could have figured out a plan B, I'd have been executing it. I would not have been in Alcoholics Anonymous. I am not a guy that surrendered and came to AA. That's not my story. I'm not a guy that believed he was going to get sober. Let me tell you how powerful Alcoholics Anonymous is. You don't even have to believe in it for it to work. Isn't that something? Do you know you can have an awful attitude? Do you know that you can have two newcomers standing in front of you with 30 days of sobriety? We'll take one of them. We'll call him, I don't know, Johnny AA. Everybody's met Johnny AA. 30 days sober, on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I feel like I'm home. This is great. I'm reading the book. Have you met my sponsor? Terrific guy. I've been looking for this my whole life. And, oh, he's quoting the book in meetings, you know. And, and you have another newcomer. I don't know. We'll call him Don. And, uh. 
And you can tell Don's not happy to be here by the look on his face, and he's sharing about it, you know what I mean? And he's, old-timers are giving him a wide berth because he's dangerous. He seems to growl at people when they get too close. And he's not afraid to tell you he doesn't believe in God, and this is all spiritual hooey, and don't get comfortable with me. I'm not going to be here that long. And you would think that Johnny AA has a leg up on Don, but he doesn't, does he? Because the rubber meets the road, not an intention, how we feel our opinion about Alcoholics Anonymous. The rubber meets the road, who's willing to take the actions dictated in the first 164 pages of the big book. Without that, nothing happens. You think we're a great organization? Wonderful. No power there. You think you're home, you got some nice people, you got people in your corner for the first time? Wonderful. No power there. Look, man, willingness is great, and I believe if you couple it with a little bit of enthusiasm, you can watch somebody blossom around here. Don't get me wrong, but I'm telling you, thank God it's an action-based program. Because if any of the solution has to do with the raw material that I bring to the game, I'm dead. Because my scorecard reads zero. My tank is on empty. I've got nothing left to give. I have been broken on the wheel of life. And when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't need any strength from me, which is great news because I have none to offer. And that is a perfect place. Isn't it funny? AA is the only place in the planet I know where the worse you are, the more we like you. <laughs> I remember my first sponsor, my first meeting with him, why he was telling me the meetings I'd be going to in Alcoholics Anonymous with a meeting directory and a red pin circling them. And I know that that was happening because he said, these are the meetings you'll be going to in Alcoholics Anonymous. And why I was thinking how much circling that appeared to be, he asked me if I was unemployed. He goes, are you currently employed? I said, no, I'm currently unemployed. More circling, more circling, more circling. But he said something very bizarre. He said, oh, great. And he meant it. Nowhere else on the planet will you meet somebody, and when they find out you're unemployed, they'll go, terrific. <laughs> but if you're new in AA, we go, great. Nothing between you and sobriety. Nothing, no big job to save, no big ego to fool people with. And, uh, oh, you're broken, you're dying, you got no plans left. Beautiful. Welcome to AA. Welcome. <laughs> Love it. The worse you are, the better we like you. And I didn't come here easily. You know what I mean? I had all the stuff that, you know, Tarek did a wonderful job about talking about the first step. I get that mental obsession. I get those strange mental blank pops where at certain times it doesn't matter. I wake up every day. I'm the oh no. I'm the oh no guy every day. You know what I mean? And then I say a prayer every morning, not tonight. Just not tonight. I can't do it anymore. I wasn't raised this way. I'm dying, and I know it. And I'm not going to do it. And it's a good plan. And I got to get in the shower, and I got to get to work, because the work, the job's always in jeopardy. You know what I mean? And I get to work, and I can't look anybody in the eye, and I don't feel human. But by noon, I can choke some food down. And my head's screaming all day long, all day long. We're not going to do it. Not tonight. We're going to go home. We're going to get some food. We're going to get some rest, because we are dying. And every day after a day of knowing I'm not going to do it, making that prayer to God that let it be different tonight, I have the miracle of 3 o'clock every day that in spite of all what my head has told me and all the failure in my life, that those thoughts that are playing on a loop, all the failure, all the missed opportunities, all the hurt, all the shame, guilt, and remorse choking me out all day long, suddenly that's pushed aside with a thought that maybe I can have a couple. And my brain gets really excited, the part that doesn't want to drink. Wait a minute, we had a plan. What are you talking about? But it doesn't matter. Because the fire's been ignited, and I'm driving to the liquor store at 5 o'clock, and I'm pointing at the big jug. And I got it in the car seat next to me. And I'm talking to it like it's the devil itself riding shotgun. Why do I do this? I know what you do to me. And I got a head that's screaming like a band of demons about the failure in my life and what a loser I am and how much money I owe and how I'm going to lose that job and every good relationship that I blew up and I just got to get home and I got to get a glass and I got to put a little ice in that. I got to put four to six ounces of whiskey in it, swirl it twice, take half of that down. Just take it in a gulp. Take it right down. It'll take the air right out of your lungs. <sighs> get some air pumped in there and finish that four to six ounces and then repeat as recommended. And wait. 
And I've had a head all day talking about how the IRS is going to find me, whatever the big deal. She's going to leave. She's going to come back. I'm going to lose the job. Whatever's going on in my life. And suddenly I can bring all those things to my consciousness. But there's been a shift. The IRS, I owe them all that money. Let them find me. They're going to fire me at this good job. You know what? I was looking for a job when I found this one. She's about to leave. She's about to come back. Well, women come and women go, don't they? Alcohol for me is magic in a bottle. It gives me the effect that people that aren't in Alcoholics Anonymous don't understand. And what's the effect? For me, in a word, it's relief. Relief from what? From what swirls around in my head in a sober state. And the longer my alcoholism plays out there, the more my head screams at me about the state of my life when I'm sober. And here's a shameful, embarrassing secret I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it wasn't that tough guy stuff I did and the trips to jail and the hearts I broke and the car crashes and the chicanery and the theft. That wasn't all the stuff. In fact, you get a couple of drinks of whiskey and me, I might brag to you about those things. The horrible secret I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous is this and nothing less. I can't stand the way I feel when I'm sober. You see, that's embarrassing. And that's shameful, particularly for the people that love and care about me, that have a front row seat to the destruction of my life. They're watching me go down the drain. And why I'm going down the drain, I tell them it couldn't be better. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous very much like most newcomers. I didn't have any resentments, and I had never hurt anyone but myself. Now, if you don't have any resentments and you never hurt anyone but yourself, it means your name is Gandhi and you live in a cave. <laughs> Yet I believe that, and I was not in denial. I was not in delusion, but I had built up those walls of lies for so long. I'd been telling my version of the truth for so long that my truth becomes my reality, and you can't move me off that mark. And I caught a break in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 12-stepped in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm always offended when I hear people say we've lost our 12-step legacy. I beg to differ and argue. We have not lost our 12-step legacy. It has geographically moved. We are not a hidden society. We have a huge treatment industry. We have huge detoxes. We have many places. And you know where they're sending people when they're done with them? They are conveyor belting them to the front door of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a steady stream of misery to our individual home groups. And luckily, the people that were on duty that night in Alcoholics Anonymous knew that new people were being showing up in their meeting, and they had what good AA members had. They had their eyes trained on the room and their eyes trained on the door. And the night I was 12-stepped, my second night in Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not look the way I look tonight. I was 31 years old. I was about a Oh, I don't know, 60, 70 pounds lighter than I was now. I had hair down the middle of my back, and it was greasy because I don't shower anymore. I'm wearing my sunglasses at night with a full beard with food stuck in it. I've lost the ability to speak the king's English. I communicate in a series of hand gestures, grunts, and clicks. <laughs> I got my back against the wall. I got my arms folded across my chest, and I'm rocking back and forth in the Simi Valley Alano Club. And I'm not doing this because I'm a tough guy. I'm doing this because I feel like I'm going to explode from the inside out because I'm coming up on 48 hours without a drink of alcohol, and I'm physically addicted, and I'm detoxing hard in an Alano club in Simi Valley. And every molecule in my body is screaming, go get a drink. And every molecule in my body is screaming that it ain't going to be different this time. And every thought in my head says, look at them, Don. They're clean and they're happy and they know each other, and you're a loser. And why do you think this is going to work? How many times have you quit drinking, Don? A thousand? And what always happens, you take the pain for what, two days, three days, four days. Remember that time you made it four months? I do. And then what did you do, Don? You drank. You know what, Don? Here's an idea for you. Here's an idea, Slick. Why don't you bypass the pain? Let's get a drink. And I'll tell you, my second night in Alcoholics Anonymous, I am leaving. And I'm not leaving because God doesn't exist. And I'm not leaving because AA doesn't work. And I'm not leaving because the steps aren't true. I'm leaving because I have a mental obsession beyond my human power, and i got to go and get a drink. I'm not in charge. I'm a puppet at the end of a string, and I'm leaving AA because I can't stand the way I feel when I'm sober, and I caught a break. And there were two good members of Alcoholics Anonymous standing in the corner, and they saw me, and the way they tell the story is this. 
they saw me and Lou looked at Mark and said, whoa. (laughs) And Mark looked at Lou and went, yeah. And Lou said, I bet we can't get him sober. And Mark said, well, we're here anyway. And they took what I believe is the most important action we can take in an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two good members of Alcoholics Anonymous took a 30-foot journey across the clubhouse to cordially welcome a man to the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous who is dying from the disease of alcoholism. Hi, I'm Lou. This is Mark. We don't think we've met you. Why don't you come sit with us? Sounds like such a niceness, such a politeness. Why do I think it's so important? 30 feet for Mark and Lou, for me, it's a million miles. Don't you know what I've done, who I've hurt, where I've been? Don't you understand? I can't get my eyes off of my shoes. You want me to go shake hands? Are you kidding me? I got nothing in the tank. Lou and Mark knew this. They knew the rules of engagement for recovery from the disease of alcoholism, that they would have to carry the message to the alcoholic that still suffers. And they sat me down on the table, and Mark sat with me, and Lou continued to stand, clapped me in the middle of my back, and said, Don, this is Mark. He'll be your sponsor. And he walked away. And they assigned me my first sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. Good idea. In my case, I know it's not done everywhere, but we say things to newcomers that are just, it's crackers, isn't it? But we say it with all sincerity. My favorite thing that we say to people, why don't you find somebody that has what you want? Huh. I wonder what I want my second night in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I don't know, maybe a pharmaceutical rep with a spare Cadillac, right? Because I'm not picking the guy they assigned to me because he's everything I'm not. You know what I mean? Slide a frame, bald a head, wire rim glasses, soft smoking, and whoo he loves God. And he's not afraid to tell you about it. And he got me busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, all three sides of the triangle. We started working those steps immediately. As I was setting up meetings, cleaning up meetings, being a half an hour early, staying a half an hour late, saying yes to everything I was asked, I would have a commitment at every meeting I attended. He said, if you go to a meeting on a regular basis and you don't have a job there, you're a visitor. It only becomes your meeting if you're willing to take an action to say thank you. Because we don't sub anything out in AA. We don't hire out any job that needs to be done, and we don't refer anybody. There are no referrals from AA. You don't make it here. We don't know where to send you. (laughs) Go to your sponsor and go, you know, AA ain't working out for me. Can you refer me anywhere? I don't know, the cemetery? You know, we got... We got nowhere to send you. It's a step weekend, so I'm going to talk to you about the steps. And the steps have been covered masterfully. Up, up, and there's not a lot I can add. And I get to steps eight and nine, but there's some things I picked up along the way. Little things that I'm going to need to do steps eight and nine. The first most important thing I picked up was back in step three, because I made a commitment, didn't I? And what did I make a commitment to? Well, based on the information that I found in steps one and two, one, I'm going to die. Two, it happened to you. Maybe it'll happen to me. Three, I want it. But I don't know how to get it. But I make a decision that I'm going to hook up with this power. I just don't know how to do it. How am I going to hook up with this power that you're describing so eloquently in your stories that saved, restored, and changed your life? How do I get the resurrection in my life? They told me steps four through nine. So I write an inventory, and I go into that inventory with deep, dark resentments, right? No one's going to move my marker off that. It's their fault. I'm the perfect victim. Give me a minute. I'll sell you on that. But something happens in writing that inventory that I didn't expect to happen. It happened in the fourth column and the resentment part. I set aside all that stuff, and I started to see things that I conveniently forgot on my way to Alcoholics Anonymous. We call it the truth. I found out some things about some of those old, old, old resentments. You know, because I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, particularly about my childhood. And I found out a couple of amazing things about my childhood. One, I had a big, big part to play in that childhood because I was in that family. If it was dysfunctional, it's because I was in it. I had an older sister raised in the same insanity, the same alcoholic insanity, the same poverty, the same violence, the same everything. All she did was put herself through college and get two degrees. She went that way, I went that way. So I guess I can't blame the family. And the other thing, the other amazing thing I found out about my childhood, uh, it's over. (laughs) Did not know. 
And what do you really come up with? You know, and I want to tell you something. Somebody talked about buying big books. And uh, I really like this. He went to Barnes and Noble to buy one. It was too much money. They went half. And it triggered something in my mind. You know, there's something that my wife and I have been doing for over 20 years. And uh, we rescue big books, right? Because when I was new, I had a lot of community service to do. And I did it in the Salvation Army. And I fell in love with thrift stores, right? They thought, it, man, when I finished my community service, I did so many hours, they threw me a party, right? I was their favorite employee. They didn't realize I was shopping, you know what I mean? Because I had no money. But my wife and I, we go to thrift stores and we look for discarded AA-approved literature. We look for big books and 12 and 12s, anything we can find. And so over the years, we have found many, many big books. And what I love to do is I love to open a big book. It's like a, it's like a present because I'm so excited and I open it up. And if there's a name in it, I get excited like, oh, this belonged to somebody. You know, this wasn't just end up by your accident. And then there's a date and the date's in ink, which I think is optimistic as hell, right? And then I start flipping pages, right? And I start going through the big book, and I start to judge this alcoholic who's no longer in AA that I'll never meet. And I look at, you know, the doctor's opinion, very good. You highlighted that. That's very good. Phenomenal, great. Oh, official, oh, very good. And I'm flipping the page. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, I wouldn't have written that right there, but okay. Well, well you know, and I'm going through, oh, you want to call that the second step? I suppose you can. And, you know, I'm flipping through it. And, and these big books all have something in common. Doctor's opinion, highlight, highlight, highlight. Bill's story, highlight, highlight, highlight. There is a solution. More about alcoholism, highlight, highlight, highlight. You know, uh, uh, how it works, highlight, highlight, highlight. Into action. <laughs> it's like the book had never been touched, and all the highlighting stops. And I'm of the firm belief that every newcomer possesses a very valuable commodity that without this commodity, you can't get sober. And it's the most precious thing a newcomer has. But no newcomer recognizes it as valuable because it seems to be made up of guilt and remorse and shame. It keeps you up at night. Makes you wonder how you turned out the way you did, how you did those things, how you're ever going to look the world in the eye again. You weren't raised that way. And it turns out this commodity is called desperation. And that desperation turns out to be the true propellant that takes people through the steps. But like any propellant you can think of, you don't have an inexhaustible supply. So how much time you got? 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months? But the, uh, those of us that sponsor know the exact moment when one of our sponsees runs out of their propellant, don't we? Because they went from being, yeah, I'll be there, no problem, what time? So why you always got to ask me? <laughs> and we think to ourselves, damn, they ran out of their propellant. And I can look at these discarded big books and I can see exactly where it happened right after they wrote their fourth step. And usually, if there's more, it's right after they did their fifth step. A few little highlights in the instructions on the fifth step and then nothing else. And I ask myself, why is that? And I know the answer. It's back on page 39 in the big book. It says, for the real alcoholic, he will absolutely be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to smash home upon our alcoholic readings, to emphasize and re-emphasize as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. It feels powerful when you write an inventory. It feels like you've accomplished something, and you have. And you sit there and you say, I know myself so much better than I ever have, it would be virtually impossible for me to drink again and we stall and we don't realize that in the process of steps four through nine we're not halfway through yet and we wonder why the insanity returns through our life and that grace we were experiencing as we were in the process of steps starts to drip away and the color falls from the picture and untreated alcoholism returns and irritable restless and discontent dogger every step as we some of us are going to two meetings a day and working with others and doing all the activities of Alcoholics Anonymous but we've stopped taking the actions contained in the big book, and we're confused. And so I look at those big books, and I think, how powerful it feels when you write that inventory. But what do you really have when you're done writing an inventory except the purest form, all the explanations, all the framing, all the storytelling, ripped away example of self-knowledge you've ever had? But we've already learned that self-knowledge avails us nothing, yet it feels powerful. 
I caught a break. You see, I did my fist step, and I was waiting for the gift. You know what I mean? Because people come into meetings, they're annoying as hell after they do their fist step. They can't wait to share about it, can they? Ooh, 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 ooh. They get called on, like, I did my fist step last night, and I feel great. I feel like the weight of the world is falling off my shoulders. I feel like, well, I believed in God, but now I feel like I've had a spiritual experience. And I'm reading the promises, the fifth step promises in the big book. After we take this step, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. Our cares fall from us, blah, blah, blah. And I need that, right? Because I'm crazy. (laughs) And I can't sleep at night. And I'm wondering when it's going to happen for me. So I do my fifth step, and I know I'm going to feel wonderful. And I wait for the gift. And a day goes by, and I feel terrible. And two days go by, I feel even worse. Three days go by, I'm ready to kill myself or kill someone else. I call my sponsor up. I am upset. And I said, fist step? He goes, yeah. I go, I think we did it wrong. He goes, what makes you think you did it wrong? I said, man, I thought I was going to feel great. I've never felt so dirty and filthy and disgusting in my life. He goes, Don, I was there for your fist step. You should feel dirty and filthy and disgusting. And he told me for a guy like me, I would probably not expect any real relief until I was well into my amends. And he lined me out on my amends. And there were specific directions about how I would do them. He told me first off, he said, we are handicapped. I said, what are we handicapped with? He goes, well, in the fifth step, the first thing it tells you is we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. Most of this information that you came up with, you came up with alone. I, as your sponsor, am trusting that what you have given me is accurate. If you were in as many blackouts as you claim to have been in, who knows what really happened? And, man, that is true because as an alcoholic, it took me a long time to even get to the point to acknowledge that occasionally, through no fault of my own, I'm sorry, I sometimes hurt people. (sighs) But I have a disproportionate reaction to when things go like that happen in my relationships. I'll give you an example. My friend Ralph. I love Ralph. Anything I wouldn't do for Ralph. But by some quirk of the universe, I might be inconsiderate. I might step on Ralph's toes. I might realize I do that, and I will feel terrible. And there will be some things that I need from Ralph when that happens, because I love Ralph. And, you know, I'd like some forgiveness. And I'd like, I don't know, some understanding. Maybe some sympathy, empathy, and compassion. But if Ralph happened to do me wrong, the list seems to change. I'd like some retribution. Some revenge. And if you do make amends, could you do it in a, I don't know, a groveling manner so I'm clear that you're clear on the depths of your wrongdoing? As though there's two different types of wrongs. And I'm, I am saddled with this kind of thinking as I write that inventory as my sponsor is handcuffed with my perception of reality. So he told me, no ambushes. You will make an appointment with everybody you make amends to, one at a time. And you will tell them exactly why you're there. You will tell them you become fortunate enough to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and part of what you do is restitution and you feel that you have harmed them and you owe them restitution. And you will ask them to participate in this process and you will tell them you have no right to ask but if they're brave enough and courageous enough you would honestly like to know how your behavior and the things that you did affected them. And I said to my sponsor, this is a terrible idea. But how wise was that man? Because if not, I could end up like the guy who makes amends to his Aunt Sally, who doesn't make an appointment, who just shows up. And Aunt Sally says, oh, my goodness, Donald, what brings you over here? Well, what, I can't visit my favorite aunt? Oh, Donald, you still going to the A&A? Well, I sure am, Aunt Sally. And then I lay this heavy-handed amends on my aunt, and she doesn't know it's going to come. And at the end of it, I go, Aunt Sally, could you tell me in your own words how my behavior has affected you? And Aunt Sally is at a front row seat for the destruction of my life. And I'm sober for the first time, and I don't know, forever. You think she's going to rock the boat? She thinks she's going to tell me how my behavior really affected her? She's going to really tell me what wrongs I committed towards her, what mistakes I made in her life? How it have, or is she going to say something like this? Oh, baby, baby, baby. All we've ever wanted for you is to be sober and happy. No, you don't worry about any of that. You don't worry about the money you owe me. You don't worry about those things that happen. That's all in the past. 
And this alcoholic, grandiose and self-centered in the extreme, says, Woo! That was close. And I don't understand it. I just screwed myself out of the biggest gift that you can get around here. It's a little thing we like to call the truth. Because I will never get to the truth on my own. Because when I hurt you with no help, with no sponsorship, with no taking counsel with anybody, when I hurt you, I know some things automatically with no effort. I know how bad I hurt you, how long you should be pissed off, and what it should take for you to get over it. I don't even need to talk to you. I just know. And I'm always wrong. And thank God for sponsorship. And thank God for sponsorship in the amends process. Because I started making those family amends. And I found out some shocking things. I remember meeting with my mother. And I talked about the money. And I talked about being a crappy son. And I talked about the worry I must have caused her. And my mother, I got done with everything I thought I could remember. And I said, is there anything I forgot? And my mother said, there's one thing that you did forget I'd like to tell you about. And my mother told me a story that had happened a couple of years before I got sober that I had completely blocked out of my mind. You see, it was Christmas time a few years before I got sober, and it was about a week or a couple of weeks before Christmas. And my sister had come and visited me, and she saw the state that I was living in, and it scared her. And she called my mother up. And she said, I don't know how to tell you this any other way, but I know if this goes the way I think it's going to go, you're going to be pissed I didn't say anything. But I don't think Donald's going to make it. I think he's going to die. And I don't know what to do, Mom. And it scared the hell out of my mom. And my mom is not a woman of means. She doesn't have a lot of money. She had a plan. That if she could get her boy, her baby boy in front of her, maybe she could love on him. Maybe she could talk some sense into him. Maybe she could save him. So my mother called me up and said, why don't you come visit me? My mother lived in Lexington, Kentucky. She said, you'd love Lexington. It's beautiful at Christmas time. There's snow. They do the whole town up. It's all lit up. It's beautiful. And it'll be my treat. I'll buy you the airline ticket. I'll pay for everything. Self-centered alcoholic that I was, I heard that offer, and I said to myself, I'll throw the old girl a thrill, and I'll go visit her at Christmas, and I'll drink on her dime, and it'll be great. And I meant to go. I meant to go. But wouldn't you know it, the day before my flight, I went to the bar, and wouldn't you know it, I fell in love. And I woke up the day of my flight, hung over with a stranger lying next to me. I looked at the clock and realized I had missed my plane. And things happen in life. And if you're a man and you make a mistake, you own up to that, right? You pick up the phone and you call and you say, I'm so sorry, this is what happened. But I'm not a man. I'm a scared little boy in man's clothing. And that might make me feel bad. So what I did is I took a pull off the jug and I went back to sleep. Now you swing the camera around the Lexington, Kentucky and you see a gray-haired woman get up a couple of days before Christmas. And it's not snowing out and it's not raining. It's kind of sleeting and it's cold. But she doesn't notice because to her, it's a beautiful spring day because her baby boy is coming for Christmas time. And she told me how excited she was and how she got dressed and she drove that old car that she had down to the airport to go pick up her baby boy. And this is back in the days before 9-11 where you could walk out in the tarmac. My mother's out in the tarmac with her little umbrella watching my plane come in. And she said, I was so excited when your plane touched down. My heart was beating like a little bird because I knew I was moments away from seeing you. And I was so scared for you and I loved you so much. And she's watching people get off the plane. She goes, no, that's not him. He's not tall enough. Nope, that's not him. And finally, none of, there's no more passengers getting off. And the flight attendants walk by her. And then the captain and the co-pilot are walking by. And she grabs the captain by the arm. She goes, there must be some mistake. My son is on that plane and I haven't seen him yet. And he said, lady, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe he missed the flight. And my mother said at that moment she noticed the weather for the first time. And she felt the cold on her face. And she felt the sting of the ice. And she walked back to her car. And she said, I was shaking so bad I couldn't start my car. And I sat there. And I cried for half an hour because I knew I had lost you to the drink. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I said, the only person I hurt was myself. And when my mother told me that story that day I made amends, something inside me broke. I owed my mother a great deal of money. I didn't know how much. I said, how about if I send you 100 bucks a month for the rest of your life? She said, beautiful. <laughs> I got home and I wrote that first check for 100 bucks and I sent it off to my mom and 
About a week later, I get a phone call from my mom, and I answer the phone, and she's crying. She's blithering. She's talking, but I can't understand what she's saying. She's, oh. I said, Mom, Mom, calm down. Take a breath. Use your words. What are you trying to tell me? My mom said, when did you get a checking account? (laughs) Give you an idea of the kind of loser I was. I remember having to make amends to my older sister, and I was really nervous about making it for a lot of reasons. She plays a prominent part in my, she's that relative that wouldn't quit on me, you know what? But my sponsor had started laying the groundwork. You know, there's a word in the amends process in the big book, it's used in two different places. I think it's one of the most important words in the process, and the word is demonstration. In one place it says it doesn't matter if a man throws us out of his office, we've made our demonstration it's water over the dam. But more importantly, it says, a man will be more interested in our demonstration of goodwill than our talk of spiritual discoveries. Now, long before I'm on the amends process, I'm maybe three and a half months sober. My sponsor rose up on me like the ninja he was because I would never see this stuff coming. And he says this, what are you doing for that family you've treated so shockingly over the years to say thank you for them letting you get sober in their house? And I said, well, I'm not drinking. He said, that's mighty big of you. Uh, Go home tonight and ask your sister if there's anything you can do to say thank you. It just seemed simple to me. And I went home and I said to my sister, I go, well, my sponsor wants to know if there's anything I can do to say thank you. And she didn't miss a beat. She goes, well, you can paint my house. And I said, your whole house? (laughs) And she said, yeah. And I said, "Ah, I got to talk to my sponsor. And uh, And I go back to my sponsor, and I go, this crazy woman wants me to paint her two-story, 3,800-square-foot house. And he says, is she buying the paint? And I go, well, I assume. He goes, ah, paint her house. Then he walked away real dismissively. And I hated when he did that. I hated it. And I yelled at the back of his bald head. I said, hey, I thought this program was suggested. Uh, That was a mistake. Um, I didn't know he could move like that. Because he was back in my personal space looking up at me with that finger, and I'm looking down at him, and he said, Don, you're so sick that anything that comes out of my mouth, I want you to assume it's a direction, and we'll let you know when you've passed into the suggestion phase of the program. (laughs) But you see, my sponsor was a student of the big book, and he believed in the demonstration of goodwill. Every amends I went to make, I had to have a preconceived idea of what my demonstration of goodwill was and be open-minded that I would probably have to change it if they had one of their own. But he also knew I couldn't sleep at night. He also knew that my sister and I loved each other so much, but we couldn't be in the same room at the same time for very long, although I was now sober and Alcoholics Anonymous going to two meetings a night, trying to be a good brother, trying to make those living amends as best I could. There was something between us. There was so much hurt, so much pain, that we just couldn't really get it together. And I'll never know for sure what painting her house did for my sister, but I'll tell you what it did for me. It seemed the longer I got into that project, with every sweep of the brush, every push of the roller, I felt a little bit better about being in that house and my relationship with my sister. And when I got done, we were not even Stephen, not by a long haul. But you know what? What was ever was wrong with us, I could be in the same room at the same time with her and breathe the same air and look her in the eye. And Alcoholics Anonymous, and in particular, the immense process and the idea of that demonstration of goodwill gave me back one of the most important people in my life, and it wouldn't have happened with talk. The big book is clear. Hearts are broken, sweet relationships are dead, inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil for years. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. We don't want to be like the farmer who emerges from his cyclone cellar to view the devastation of his farm only to remark to his wife, don't see anything wrong here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? No. There is a long period of reconstruction ahead, and we must take the lead. A mumbling apology that we are sorry will not fit the bill at all. My sponsor said what I do will speak so loud they won't be able to hear what I am saying, that people would rather see a sunset than listen to a sermon. We will not talk to them about God and Alcoholics Anonymous. We will show them God and Alcoholics Anonymous. We will show them our amends when we change or fix a mistake or a wrong that we have done through action. And thank God for that. 
And I was not perfect when I got sober. I mean, I went to work. I was working construction. I hated working construction. I'd never worked with my hands before. I sucked at the job. I had a nickname on the job site, the bleeder. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> awful. And I'll tell you what, man, I was stealing 20 bucks a week from my sister's purse. And I never meant to do it. Sober and Alcoholics Anonymous with a sponsor going to 14 meetings a week, setting up, cleaning up, doing everything I was asked to do in AA. And I'm stealing 20 bucks a week from my sister's purse. And I'll tell you, the first time it happened, I felt so bad. And I mean, the minute I got paid, I snuck that 20 bucks back in. And it was horrible that week before payday. And I said to myself, I will never do that again. And I didn't more than six or seven times. You know what I mean? And then I finally knocked it off, you know. But I never told my sponsor about that until I made amends. And I never told my sister about that until I made amends. And I felt terrible. And how am I going to explain that to her? And I told my sister about all the horrible things that she really already knew about. And I got to the end. And I said, there's one more thing i got to talk to you about. And she said, what's that? I go, I stole from you. She goes, oh, Don, I know you stole from me. You've been stealing me for years. And I go, no, no, no. This happened when I was sober in your house. She goes, what are you talking about? I told her the story. I said, I'd take 20 bucks, you know, and I'd spend it. And then on payday, I'd slide 20 bucks back in. And I must have done it six or seven times. Sober, active member in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I don't know how to make that right. And I don't know how that would make you feel. And I don't know what to do to correct it. But you need to tell me. And I know she's going to put me on blast, right? And what she said was this. Oh, thank God. I'm so glad you're telling me. I thought I was losing my mind. I go in my wallet, I know I got 60 bucks, I got 40 bucks. I go in my wallet, I know I got 50 bucks, I got 70 bucks. I thought I was going crazy. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling me in them. Just want to be of service, you know. <laughs> and I got done saying my piece to my sister, and I, I say, have I left anything out? Or what's your perception and how have I harmed you if I'm inaccurate? And she goes, well, you think this is how you've hurt me? By stealing my cars and stealing my money and doing things like that. And I go, yeah, that's my perception. She goes, you couldn't be more wrong. And then she continued. You said, you don't know what it's like to love somebody as much as I love you. And when I watch you dying and ask you how you're doing, you tell me, couldn't be better. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like when the phone rings in my house and it's later than 10 o'clock at night. I know it's them calling me to tell me I'm never going to see my baby brother again. You don't know what it's like. And I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know what it was like to, to love an alcoholic. But thank God for the amends process because boiled down, you go through enough of those experiences where you sit across the table with somebody that you love that loves you and you know you've torn the cover off of their life with your alcoholism. It'll leave you with one thought ringing crystal clear in your head. I never want to live this way again. I never want to see that look of pain on another human being's face because of something I did. But we talk about the consequence of men's a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember the consequence of the money showing up in the courtrooms, doing all of that stuff. But ba basically, that stuff benefits me. It's stuff I have to do to get to a better life. I remember paying back the IRS. God, I entered into a payment agreement. I was making seven bucks an hour with taxes taken out. And I entered a payment agreement to send him 100 bucks a month. And I write him a check. And I remember thinking, oh, good, 79900 to go. And, uh, <laughs> and God, you know, it's the funniest thing. In We Agnostics, it says this, God is everything or else he's nothing. What was our choice to be? And I don't believe God's an employment counselor. And I don't believe that his job is to make sure I can pay my bills. But I'll tell you this. I stood up behind the hedge of life that I've been hiding behind for years, and I put my hand up. And I said, I'm right over here. I'm the guy that did it, and I'm here to make it right, and I'm here to pay it back. And it's almost like the universe saw it. Because for no other explanation, I started to get better jobs. And I started to make more money. And I started to have more money. To pay. I didn't have any more money in my pocket. I just had more money to pay my creditors. You know what I mean? Because my sponsor explained to me, he said, kid, don't worry about any of this. They do not want your money. And I said, they don't? They go, no, they want their money. <laughs> so I was able to give them their money back quicker. And I was doing it. 
But it was tough, man, because the ego's in there, because I'm starting to make money, but I'm not allowed to spend it because I'm trying to do it by numbers in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember I got into sales. Now I'm making some real money. And we're saving for a house, and my Eileen's paying back her student loans, and I'm paying back the IRS, and we have a budget, man. We have a budget, you know, and we don't go off of that budget. We want them AA budgets, you know, that our sponsors know about, you know. So we're, like, eating at home and packing lunches and fighting the good fight and helping newcomers, you know. And, but, you know, your ego's in there, too. Like, where's mine? I know it's coming soon. And, man, I had this great month, great month where I made, you know, and it's not crazy money by today's standard, but it was a lot of money to me. And after everything in the budget was satisfied, there was a surplus. There had not been a surplus in six-plus years. And suddenly there's this money, and it's not a fortune, but it was $3,000. It was a lot of money to me. And my ego stepped right up to the plate and said, what do we buy first? Golf clubs, big screen TV, what are we buying? I was so excited. And I went to my soon-to-be wife, and I said, there's a surplus. There's $3,000. I did, I did so good this month. I don't know what I'm going to buy first. And she said, you should probably send it to the IRS. And I said, five minutes. You can't let me be happy for five minutes. And I'm all pissed off, and I call my sponsor up to complain about my wife. And he listens patiently and gets to the end. He goes, Don, I'm not going to tell you you, should, you have to send that money to the IRS, but I'm going to tell you you probably should. And I'm an idiot, and I hang up on him. And I do not send the money to the IRS. And I don't spend it. It sits in my checking account mocking me <laughs> and finally after about four weeks I just can't take the pain anymore because I know who I am and I, I'm an AA guy and I know I got to do the right thing I just don't want to and I write the check bitter internal revenue service three thousand dollars and I and I mail it off and I wait for the spiritual gift because I know I'm going to feel great about it in fact a week goes by and I'm feeling like I made a mistake like, that was a chump move. Why did I do that? And I called my sponsor because now I'm mad at him. And I, I go, man, you know, I sent him this money. I thought I'd feel better. I'd feel worse. When am I going to feel better about this? He said, I don't know, Don. Someday. Because that's what sponsors say when they don't have an answer. <laughs> and you fast forward a couple of years, man, and we're closing escrow on our first house. And Eileen says, you should probably call the IRS and make sure your debt doesn't trip us up at the finish line. And I've been paying for years by this time. I got my own agent. His name's Bill. I have a direct line. And I call up Bill. Bill answers the phone. I go, Bill, it's Don. Don, how are you? Good, Bill. How are the kids? Great, Don. Thanks for asking. Growing like weeds. Bill, I'm just calling to check my balance. Okay, Don. And he goes ahead. He gets off the phone. He comes back and he says, Don, funniest thing. You've actually overpaid by $400. Would you like us to send you a check? Now, if you've sent every spare nickel you have to the IRS for five or six years, your answer sounds a little bit like this. You bet your ass. And uh, <laughs> I immediately called my sponsor up and I said, you remember that when you told me one day I'd feel better about the IRS? He goes, yeah, I go, today's the day. And some amends are like that, aren't they? You know when you're going to feel better about it? When you fulfilled the obligation and not a minute before. Not a minute before. But those are the consequences of men's. And what do men's look like today? What do they look like in my life? And I don't want to tread too much into the 10th step because you have, the 10th step's the initiator for what the men's look like in my life today. But I'll tell you this, I make a lot of amends because I'm in 10 and 11. You see, I'm a human being. I'm imperfect. The biggest catalyst for me having to make an amends today is I'm inconsiderate. That doesn't mean I'm mean. It means what the word sounds like. I just didn't consider you. I was in a state of self, and I didn't notice you. I ran you over. I was disrespectful to you. I just didn't know you needed something from me. If I've sponsored you for over six months, I guarantee you I've made formal amends to you. Because I'm a human being. And sometimes I'm short with guys that I sponsor. And sometimes I'm inconsiderate of how they're feeling. And I have to go back to a young man and say... I don't apologize for what I said, but I want to make amends for how I said it and let you know that's unacceptable, that you're one of God's kids, and that would bother me if somebody talked to me that way. And I'll tell you what, if you want to see one of your sponsees light up like Christmas, tell them, do you have a minute? I'd like to make amends to you. Oh, you bet, sponsor, anything for you. <laughs> They're just thrilled. And, I mean, one of the last big amends I had to make, doesn't sound like much to you, but it meant a lot to me. You know, it was last January, and I had to have a little medical procedure, no big deal, but it involved fasting for 24 hours. And I show up, and my appointment is at 3.30 to check in. And I am there at 
325 with my wife because I'm going to need a ride home. And I go up and very politely, hi, I'm Don Landis. I'm checking in. And what's your birthday? And I give her my birthday. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. We're running a little late today. We won't be getting to you till five, an hour and a half after my appointment. And now I'd love to blame the fact that I hadn't eaten in almost 24 hours. I'd love to blame the fact I, I, wasn't, I wasn't spiritually. But this is what came out of my mouth. Hey, that's terrific. That's good information. It would have been good information if I received it via phone call while I was sitting on my couch before I drove a half an hour down here to sit in the stinky waiting room for an hour and a half. But thanks for the effort. And Eileen is pulling on my sleeve, on my coat. And she goes, we should really walk away. I'm walking away. I'm fine. You know, and I storm out of it. So I, I go through the procedure. I do what I do. And I get out of there. And I later that night, man, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about, oh. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I really shouldn't do, you know. I, boy, it's so rare that I talk to somebody like that that I don't know. It's so rare that I talk to anybody like that. I said, you know, I was really off my game. I really, you know, I should, boy, that, what, that, really, that hungry, angry, lonely, tired thing's true, boy. I was really hungry. And, uh, but I'm not going to make amends. By the next morning, I get up after a fitful night's sleep, and I just, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. You know what I mean? I don't even know the woman's name. I just know where the office is. And I, right in the middle of my day, man, I go to the flower store. I buy some flowers. I stop at the donut store because I don't know what people like. Maybe she wants to share with her coworkers. I buy some really nice donuts. And now I'm like an idiot walking into this doctor's office with flowers and donuts. And I walk up, and there she is right at the counter. I go, beautiful. And I walk up. She looks up. Can I help you? I go, yeah, do you remember me? I was here yesterday, and I... Wanted to come by and apologize. She goes, no, you know what? We see a lot of people being really busy. And I go, oh. And I tell her what I said. She goes, oh, you. <laughs> and I tell her how sorry I am that I spoke to her that way. And that nobody should be spoken to that way. And I said, and please, as a token of my, my appreciation for what you do and my failure to act like a human being, please accept these flowers and share the donuts with your coworkers and let me know if there's anything I can do to make it right. And she looks at me, she goes, oh, sweetie, it's fine. I deal with people all the time that haven't eaten in a day. It brings out the worst in people. But nobody's ever come in after they barked at me and said they're sorry. That means a lot to me. And then she lowers her voice and she goes, hey, hey, like that. <laughs> and I went, and she goes, I thought so. And so it continues, and the thing that I have to continue to do in my life is I have to be willing. But I really want to, I want to close with this thought, you know, about the amends. That line in the fifth step, which I think dovetails into the amends, is so important. There's spiritual principles contained in all the steps. And sometimes we think that the steps are isolated. Like if there's a spiritual principle in this step, it doesn't apply to that step. And I disagree, because our program is referred to in three places as a design for living. And although the steps are kind of compartmentalized when we go through them, over time, going through them repetitively, it's almost like the loving hand of God pulls out those dividers and what is revealed is designed for living. Because the 12 steps boiled down in the final allow me the honor and privilege of asking one question and one question only with nothing between me and the answer, which is what would God have me do? And when I'm able to ask that question with nothing between me and the answer and I really want the answer, then things start to change in my life. But I have to remember that the solitary self-appraisal will always be insufficient. I'm 27 years sober. I need a sponsor more than I ever want. I need friends and mentors and Alcoholics Anonymous more than I ever did. Why? Because my ego is 27 years sober. And it tells me I know how to live and I know how to make amends and I know when I'm wrong and I know when I have to do it and when I don't. And it's funny how many times I've gone to my sponsor in a very casual manner. I don't think I owe an amends, but I should probably talk to you about this. And I get done, and he goes, what makes you think you don't owe an amends? He goes, did you hear what you just told me? Ah, go make amends. Ah, you know, and I can't seem to do that on my own sometimes. I need that unemotional outside presence. And I, because I've done that, I've become familiar with it in my marriage, in my work life with, my, with the owner of the company, with the guys I sponsor, my neighbors. I've created this transparency and this idea that I can't get where I need to go without their input because I can't see me. I used to be very confused in my marriage. How, do you, how does this work? How do you find out the mysteries of marriage? Never realizing that all the answers to my questions 
were contained in this wonderful woman sleeping peacefully next to me. I just never thought to ask. And I started to ask because when I made amends to my wife, I had to start asking her what to do instead. And it started because I went to make amends to her once and she put her hand up and she said, don't bother. And she said, you're just going to do it again. And what she said was, be honest. And if I was honest, I would have said this, don't be mad at me. It makes me feel bad about myself. I'm not really concerned how it affects you. You're just harsh in my buzz. Because the truth of the matter is I'm selfish and self-centered. And I can't tell you how many times my wife has come to me very serious about, I need to talk to you about something. I go, oh, man, what do I do now? And she'll start to talk about somebody else, and I sense relief. And I lose interest in what she's saying because she's not mad at me. And I started to ask my wife questions, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate me? First time I did that, I couldn't believe it. She had an answer immediately. It was not the number I was thinking of. I'll say this and sit down. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there was nothing wrong, nothing worse than being wrong. You know, you go to your sponsor, you tell them how you feel about something. That's okay, kid, you're just wrong. I go, wrong? How could I be wrong? And today, I get excited when I find out I'm wrong. Because I also know this. Change, which we talk about. Transformation, which we talk about in AA. You know, I've never brought to God any problem that I don't have. I cannot change unless first I'm wrong about something that one time I thought I was right about. It's a necessary component in change, probably the most important one. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.